don't know if you heard this story, but one time there was these two guys flying this little small plane and, and it crashed on this deserted island. And, and when it did, they lived, but their, their box that had the communication got destroyed. And when they got out of the plane, they were trying to fix the box. They couldn't. And the passenger went up to the pilot and started saying, what are we going to do? We're going to be lost here forever. It's deserted and there's no way to communicate. And, and the pilot said, look, it's going to be okay. Just calm down. He goes, are you paying any attention? Look around. We're stuck here forever. He said, look, it's, it's really going to be okay. And he reached up and he grabbed him by the collar and he goes, you're not listening. We're stuck here forever. What are we going to do? He said, look, just calm down. It's going to be okay. He said, I go to church, I make $100,000 a week, and I tithe. Do you think my pastor will ever stop looking for me? So, so good. <laughs> See, I know Stan well, don't I? Yeah, okay. Uh, you know, one of the things we do is this thing called transformational leadership, that where we connect uh, what God's Word says with research uh, in reality and then we go out with, to different spheres of society, whether it be churches, business, governments, education system, and we basically put the Bible in English without the Scripture uh, because there are kingdom principles that work whether you believe they work or not. And, and when people learn these kingdom principles, not even knowing their kingdom principles, and they see the success, they then ask where they came from. You know how fun it is to be with a bunch of executives and they say, man, all your stuff works. It all works. My marriage is better. My family's better. My employees are happier. We make more money. It all works. You know, where's this stuff come from? You don't want to know. No, we do. We want to know. Tell us where it comes from. No, trust me. You don't want to know. No, we want to know. I said, just trust me. You don't want to know. You know how fun it is to have people begging for the gospel? <laughs> we pay you a lot of money. Tell us where it comes from. You reach in your backpack and you, it all, I plagiarize it all. It's all plagiarized right out of this one book. And you know what? All this stuff we've taught you, if you believe this book, oh, by the way, you've already found out, you don't even have to believe this book for these principles to work. But you know what? There's part of this book, if you believe it, you can find a peace that passes understanding. And if you go to church, they'll tell you, find Jesus and find a peace that passes understanding. And I'm going to tell you, that's not true. You find Jesus and you'll find a peace for about 60 days and then the work begins. And your life's going to get turned upside down. And I can show you how in that upside down to find a peace that passes understanding. So the reason all my stuff works is I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And I believe he died and he rose again. And I believe because of that I've spent eternity in heaven. And it already started. I'm in the kingdom today. It doesn't start when I lose this flesh. It's already started. And you can start that too. I said the reason all my stuff works is because it's not my stuff. My stuff doesn't work. If my stuff had worked, I wouldn't have had to hit over the two by four to do this thing now called transformational leadership. And one of those kingdom principles that all the psychiatric research shows that in all of our life, events takes place. We have all these events that take place in our life. Somebody says something, does something, does something to us. And when those events take place, we have a thought. And when we have a thought, it generates a feeling. And that feeling causes us to act or behave. And that same research shows that if you have a thought and a feeling, if when you have that feeling, if you can change the thought before you behave, you can change the feeling and actually behave differently. And it's interesting, we're told this over and over in the Bible, even Jesus says it to the disciples, you know, your problem is your thinking. You know, in Romans 12, it says, be you transformed by changing the way you think so that you can do the perfect, acceptable, pleasing will of God. I am a person, I don't have a theology degree, and so I just removed all the numbers from the Bible. 
And what I realized when I moved all the numbers, it had a very different message. And then I realized that BU Transformed, it started telling us in Romans 12, 3, what a transformed mind looks like. And it keeps going and, 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 and. I said, wow, that's awesome. So if we have a transformed mind, you know what it says? It says you'll be able to do a personal assessment of yourself, doing it based on your level of faith. And then it talks about that we all have a part in the body. And if you're good at leadership, lead. And if you're good at prophecy, prophesy. And if you're good at being kind, be kind. And if you've got money, give it generously. And then it says, don't just pretend to love, really love. And it says, don't avenge yourself because I'll take care of that. I'm thinking, wow, God has a message for what a transformed mind actually looks like. What if the church actually knew they had a checklist? He says, go tell them they got a checklist. So we try to take that psychiatric research and the reality of kingdom principles that work in every sphere. They work in families, and we try to show that to people. When the Lord hit me over the head with this two-by-four, being a business guy, I didn't know that church and leaders in the spiritual body around the world, I should say the religious body around the world, didn't get along. And he put a message in my heart to speak to the leaders in Cincinnati and, and then beyond, and he hasn't released me now in 12 years from giving this little piece every time I speak, so... Just let me do this if you don't mind. And he asked me to go out and share with his body that we only have one enemy, and it's not each other. And he wants his church, he wants his kingdom back from that enemy. He wants us to come together in unity in Jesus, not uniformity in theology. He wants us to come together around our level of understanding, the best way we get it, but to play our piece of the puzzle together for the greater purposes of the kingdom. He wants us to realize that every saint has a past, and every sinner has a future. And from that, he wants us to truly understand his forgiveness, to learn to forgive one another and ultimately forgive ourselves. And he wants to know as a Christian, as a leader in the body of Christ, that the, the greatest Christian leaders are those that are willing down, willing to lay down their lives for those with whom they lead or have influence, willing to set aside their own personal agenda and take on a greater agenda of serving God and serving others. As I was Getting this download, I, I didn't understand exactly why, and you'll understand why in a few minutes when you hear just a touch of my story. But I was asking God, this seems pretty simple. Could you give me something more profound? And one night in the middle of the night, I, I keep this legal pad next to my bed, and I woke up the next morning. I had written that night, all I really want you to do is tell my people, all I really want them to do is to learn to love me and love each other. And so I started asking, why is that so hard? Why are we not seeing transformation? You know, we, we got all these big churches and we got all these things going on, but why are we not seeing personal lives actually transformed into the likeness of Jesus? Why are we not seeing companies transformed in, in cities and in government offices? And as I started reading the Bible more and more, I realized that Jesus was asked uh, a, a number of questions, and depending on your version of what these might look like, but one of them is, how do I spend eternity with you? Another one is, how do I enter the kingdom of God? And another one is, what's the greatest commandment? And he answered all those three questions the same way. He said, love the Lord God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your flesh. And sometimes he only lists three of them, but he said all four of them. He said, and the second one is like the first, and some people say that the Greek word is actually equal to the first. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And as I started reading and studying and asking, what do I do next, I came up with this theory. And my theory is that most of us do love our neighbor as we love ourselves, and there lies the problem. We've not yet to really, truly understand how much God loves us. Let's put it in English, emotionally, physically, spiritually, and mentally. 
so we can love ourselves that way so that flows out to love our neighbors. As I went through that, I said, okay, God, why is that? And he started showing me that, that all of us, we have this, this mask that we wear, and we put ourselves out to be something, but on the inside, we're something else. And, and, and it's this thing that we call our ideal self, either who we aspire to be or who we put ourselves out to be and what's really on the inside, and, and we have a gap there. And I call this Neverland. You know, I say, I'll never do something. I'll never do this as a Christian. I'll never do that. And all of us, that I've, I've never met anyone that's told me they didn't not do something. All of us have not done something. We've ended up doing the thing we said we'd never do. And so here's just a little bit of my story. I, you know, I said I'm going to get married, and uh, I'll never commit adultery. I'll never get a divorce. And marriage is going along. And then as we get married and you have children, and you start feeling a little bit of rejection, and you start separating from your spouse a little bit emotionally and then mentally, and then physically, then you start working more. Maybe you travel for work, and there's a little bit more rejection sets in, and you feel a little bit more of that, and then there's more emotional, spiritual, physical disconnect, and all of a sudden, in every way, you're disconnected, so you travel more, and, and you start thinking maybe about somebody at work that you never really thought that much about before, and they start looking different, and then you start fantasizing about that person, and before you know it, you're acting on that fantasy alone. Well, you're the CEO. Just get them to travel with you. Before you know it, you end up in a hotel room doing the very thing you said you would never do. And what happens when that happens, we have this road that we try to walk on, and, and we're taught in church it's a very narrow road to righteousness. And then all of a sudden we have this gap in who we put ourselves out to be as the spiritual pastor of a church and, 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 and the CEO doing biblical principles and what we're really living in our private lives. And this gap between our ideal self and real self becomes directly related to the amount of stress that we have in our lives. And when that stress kicks in, our bodies are like a car. And when a car is running well, the transmission fluid is good, the oil is good, the gas is full, the tires are full, and the car runs well. But when the oil runs out, the, binge, the engine runs, burns up. When you run out of gas, you can't keep going. If you've got a flat tire, you pull over. And our bodies are like that. And when our bodies are full, at the top of our, of our, of our car is something called serotonin. And when our serotonin is good, we're balanced. We're, we're sleeping well. We're pretty balanced. Our thoughts are good. And there's another one at the top called dopamine, and that's the one that causes us to want to be in relationship with people. But once we get this gap between our real self and our ideal self, the stress kicks in. For example, if I think it's okay to work 80 hours a week and I'm working 80 hours a week, there's no stress. If I think I'm supposed to be with my family and I'm working 80 hours a week, there's tremendous stress. If I think there's nothing wrong with pornography and I'm doing it, there's no stress. If I think it's wrong and I'm doing it, there's a big gap and stress kicks in. So all of a sudden when this stress kicks in, it hits our serotonin and our dopamine. And as those get out of whack, our adrenal system kicks in and cortisol or adrenaline starts being released into our system. And that's what keeps us going because we're out of balance. And when that happens, we'll have a spurt of energy and then we're really tired and a spurt of energy and we're really tired. And the next thing we know, anxiety kicks in. And we start having these anxious thoughts. Our thoughts start changing. The things that were logical are now not logical. And the things that weren't, and, and we start doing crazy things. And about that time, from that, that can lead to depression. And depression leads to suicide. Now, suicide can come in lots of forms. It can be emotional, physical, mental, or spiritual. It can be a relational suicide. It could be a divorce. It could be a church split. It could be a gun in the mouth. So all those different things. But at some point, when we go through that, a death occurs. There's a reason we have a, the, the divorce rate that we're going through now, and this is what happens. 
because we hide these things are on the inside and instead of letting them out and dealing with them, we hide them and then all of a sudden that person becomes controlling and manipulating. We try to control and manipulate the conversations and the environment so nobody will find out what's going on in there. And the next thing we do, we start convoluting the communication and, and you can get a, a question from your wife like, why do you have 400 phone calls on your cell phone bill to the same woman this month? And somehow you get out of that when your wife is the valedictorian graduating a year early and magnum cum laude in college and, and how can you get out of that question? But you learn to control and manipulate and convolute. The next thing you know, there's sacrifice that takes place. The marriage is sacrificed. The leader is sacrificed. And what happens, they try to discredit whoever tries to help. So whoever's walking in this place will discredit those that see it and try to help. And then boom, here comes the death. And as I realized, the reason we have that so much in the church is, is we're trying to do so much alone. You know, we're told that it's a narrow road. And, and when I realized the only way that road can get wider is to have people to walk on it with us. And so that day that I told you about that, I was, uh, that I told you that the Lord said, just tell them I want you to love God and, and love each other. A couple of weeks after that, I was at a church picnic with our a pastor's wife sitting next to me and the pastor next to her and my wife next to me and and, and Anita is quite a, quite a bit older than me and this is years ago and and she looked up at me and Anita's one of those people you know how sweet the presence is in this place right now well if Anita walked in it would just get sweeter because when she walks in like Jesus just walks in with her and when she looks at you it's like Jesus just oozing out at you and she looked up at me and she was talking and and she had a piece of lettuce in her teeth this is Anita if it was Stan, I wouldn't care, but it's Anita. Okay. So I leaned over and I said, Anita, you have a piece of lettuce in your teeth. And she reached up and she grabbed her napkin and she gave it one of these and she went, I said, you got it. And she said, thank you. A couple minutes go by and she's talking and she looks up and guess what? Yeah, she had another piece of lettuce in her teeth. I said, no, not Anita. And so she looks up and I said, Anita, you have another piece of lettuce in your teeth. And, and with those sweet eyes, she laid her head over on my shoulder. And she looked up at me and she said, you must really love me. And the Lord convicted me right there at that moment and said, I want you to surround yourself with people with what I've called you to do that love you enough to tell you if you've got lettuce in your teeth. They'll love you enough to tell you if you've got a deceived place in your heart that they'll have no fear to come say to you, you're not walking where you say you walk. And from there came this concept called bumper buddies. And we came up with this thing about how could we walk on the road with people that would keep bumping us to stay on that road? And there's two things required for a bumper buddy. It's love and trust. They love you enough that if they see you kind of wandering off the road, they'll come and tell you, come on, man, let's go. You trust them enough that there's nothing in the world you can't share. There's no heart, there's, there's no heartache, there's no sin, there's no trial that you can't share with your bumper buddy. And what I found is the more bumper buddies I got, the, the wider this road got. And so if I'm struggling and I got bumper buddies, as soon as I tell them I'm struggling, if I, instead of falling off the road, they're hanging on to me. And all of a sudden, this road is extremely wide. And I realize in the church so often we don't have bumper buddies. And, it, you know, we use the word accountability partner, and then all of a sudden we feel judged because that's accountable. Bumper buddies don't judge each other. Bumper buddies bump each other to stay on the road together. And the concept that where the Lord took me in the Bible that shared this is in James 5, 16 and many other places. I just can't share all of them in a short period of time. And it says, confess your sins, your hurts, your, your, your trials, your heartaches, your pains, depending on your version, but confess your sins 
before man so that you can be prayed for, so that you can be healed. And I started realizing that so often we walk in so much pain because we, we'll, we'll, we'll confess to God, but we don't talk about it with each other because we're told not to. And so I started sharing with people, what would have happened to me if I'd have had bumper buddies in my life, if I hadn't been so arrogant and so prideful and saying, I can do this on my own. If I'd have had those bumper buddies and I would have gone out and said, you know, I'm feeling rejected at home. A good bumper buddy would have said, what are you talking about? Have you seen how your wife treats you? You're gone five days a week and she lets you do this and you feel rejected? Get a clue. That's what a good bumper buddy would do. And they bump you back over the road. And, and let's say you got back on there and, and you start wandering off again and, and you say, you know, I'm really, I'm thinking a little bit too much about this other woman. A good bumper buddy would say, you know what? Stop it right now. Don't go to that factory anymore. You go home, spend a week with your wife, leave your kids at home, get your parents to take care of them and rekindle your marriage. He would not say, or she would not say, God just wants you to be happy. They would say, boom, just so you'll know the word happy is not in there. And what I started finding out is the reason we walk in this place is, is the Bible's full of dependent events. You know what a dependent event is? A dependent event means that this can't happen unless this takes place first. So this, depend, this event is dependent on this event. And as I started reading the Bible and seeing all the dependent events, I realized that the only real dependent event, the only one that's huge, is depending on us accepting Jesus as our Savior. But after that, how do we find that pathway to a peace that passes understanding that he promises? Because I see so few walk in it. Because there's dependent events on finding that, not salvation. And the Bible's full of them, and I want to share a couple of them with you. Because I see people all over the world praying for things that are not going to happen until they do something. Because God says, if this, then this. If I threw my ink pen up in the air right now and I ask us all to pray however you want to pray, and we're all going to pray it doesn't hit the ground, what's going to happen? It's going to hit the ground. It's a dependent event. And it's a kingdom principle. And so when you got kingdom principles lined up with dependent events, why wouldn't we just go do them? If I told you today, if you'll walk out in the parking lot, there'll be a man out there with a million dollars for you. What would keep you from going? If you didn't believe me. If you believe me, how many of you would go? I'd go. I wouldn't even think about it. See, most of you didn't even raise your hand then. So, so here's my point. All right. So there must be something about not believing it. And so if the Bible says, if this, then this, I started saying, I'm just going to do the ifs. That's all I'm going to do. I'm going to focus on the ifs. If this, then this. And I'm going to show you a couple. One of them is in 2 Chronicles 7. And I'm going to start at 13, and then we're going to go to 14. But it says, I might send plagues. I might drive your fields. It says, but then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and repent and turn from their wicked ways. He says, then I will hear from heaven. Then I will forgive your sins. Then I'll heal your land. See, what happens most of us as believers, we don't feel forgiven. And so we hang on to this stuff because we're afraid if we share it, we'll be judged and condemned. But the only people that judge and condemn are those who feel judged and condemned. Because when you feel forgiven, forgiveness is easy. And judgment goes away. But he says right there, if you'll do these six things, you'll feel forgiven. And when you feel forgiven, your land will heal. Now, when I started discovering these things, I was about 41 years old. And I'd gone to the doctor. And they ran a test on how old I really was compared to how many years I'd been born. And at 41, that test showed I was 79. I was taking antidepressants, anxiety medication, rosacea, three rosacea medications for your face cracking. 
Um, allergy medicine almost every day. Spastic colon, irritable bowel syndrome. You, you say it, I was taking it. Okay, I, in this class that we do, I actually read my suicide letter that I didn't walk out. And when I started realizing this, I started saying, hold it. There's got to be an answer. I'm a guy that has the 13-year pins, went to church every Sunday, never missed for 13 years. So what's going on? Except for one Sunday, I was in the hospital when I was in elementary school, and the church came to me so I could keep my pins going. That's pretty silly, but it's all right. It's all right. And I started realizing, what if I did these dependent events? What would happen? Ten years later, I went back. Well, I've been going, but I had that test run again, that one that said, how old are you? So I was 52, and I had the test run again. It showed I was 46. I'd gotten 33 years younger as I got 11 years older and no medications. My psychiatrist even said to me, quote, this is not possible, unquote. I started realizing because you don't have the answer. But God says, if you'll do this, I'll do this. So let's all, will you do me a favor? One of my favorite dependent events is in the Lord's Prayer. Would you say the Lord's Prayer with me? That way I can get a drink of water. I'm kidding. Can we say the Lord's Prayer together? Our Father who art in heaven. Oh, very good. The last message didn't get that one. Who was sitting here? Very good. So you know that it doesn't say, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, right? Everybody knows it doesn't, that Jesus didn't say that? The Greeks added that in the 300s, and they put it in red. And when they did, I think it hid the best-kept secret in Christianity, how to get feeling forgiven. Because what he says next, for if you forgive those who sinned against you, the Heavenly Father will forgive you. And if you do not forgive those who sinned against you, the Heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. And my opinion is he's not talking about salvation. That's my opinion. My opinion is he's talking about healing, about feeling forgiven. That freedom that you sang about a while ago, that freedom that you feel here in church, you feel it 24-7. You're driving down the road in the car and you say, hey, God, how about joining me? Boom, that shows up in your car. People walk in your office and they say, what is that presence in your office? That's the kind of freedom I'm talking about. But he says, Father, forgive me how much as I forgive those who sinned against me. Everybody catching that? You want to know how much forgiveness you're receiving? It's how much you're giving. Father, forgive me as I forgive those who sins against me. For if you forgive, the Heavenly Father forgives you. And if you don't, the Heavenly Father does not. Look here, we call this getting our as in gear. Everybody got it? So let's get our as in gear. Father, forgive me as. So let's start getting our as in gear and start forgiving others. But what I found is if we could do that, I believe we can change the world. But as I went through this, I started realizing that if people went to church and they were lifetime churchgoers like I was, we went to church every Sunday. And what I heard, the message I heard is I'm a sinner and you got a sinful nature. Anybody been a, who's been a lifetime churchgoer? You ever heard that message before? Sinful nature, sinful nature, sinful nature, sinful nature. Let me show you something. If you walk over here and your thought process, which we call thinking inside the box, if your thought process is you've got a sinful nature and you leave every Sunday going, I'm not going to sin, what are you always thinking about? Sin. If you're thinking about sin, what are you going to do? You got it? It's really simple. You've got to change the thought. Now, i got news for you. You ready? Here's what Paul says. Now, here's the guy who wrote a lot of the New Testament. And he says himself, what a humble man. He says, I'm always struggling. 
Why is it that I don't do the things I want to do and I do the things I don't want to do? Now, here's the guy who wrote it, and he's admitting this is a problem. He said, why is it that my spirit is always in conflict with my mind, emotion, and flesh? Why is it that my soul and my spirit are always in conflict? It's because I, I live under the law. It's because we got a sinful nature. But see, you don't stop there. Because I think what Paul's trying to say is, you ready? You got a sinful nature. And then he goes over and, and somebody's stuck in a Romans 8 right there. And I don't know who in the world would do that because it starts out, so now, therefore. Why would you put an 8 that starts out with so now, therefore, when he just said, you got a sinful nature. So now, therefore, look here, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Put the screen back up, please. There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. That's what it says. There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. That's what he says next. Because he says, when Jesus came, look here, when Jesus came, he took away the power that sin has over you. I got news for you. The only place sin has power is in the darkness. It has no power in the light. And when our sin is put in the light, it literally loses its power. But we're convinced by man and by the enemy that we're supposed to hold on to it. But look here, you ready? You got a simple nature. But you got God's DNA. He says it. He says you got it. You're born with it. When you accept Jesus, you get the power of the Holy Spirit, and it spells out what that looks like. Peace, patience, hope, and joy, long-suffering. Yuck, I wish he hadn't put that one in there. But goodness, gentleness, kindness, and the greatest among these is love. What does Jesus look like? All of that plus forgiveness, mercy, grace, meekness, humility. What does the Father look like? All of that. Go read the Bible. Plus power, authority, honor, and glory. He wants us to walk in that. He created us to feel that. And since we don't get to a place where we can feel that, we replace it with the lie. We replace it with the lie. And on the lie side, it's not conviction. On the truth side, God uses sin to convict us to keep drawing back closer to him. And the way we draw back closer is we confess and repent. We're already forgiven, but that keeps us in that intimate relationship by confessing and repenting. And then he says, and if you confess before man, you get prayer for healing. Well, if we walk in a place of healing and forgiveness, we walk in his DNA. If we don't, we walk in condemnation. And we walk in the lie instead of the truth. And if you look on that chart up there, you'll see faith on both sides. And what we have to decide is, do we have our faith in God where we'll go out and ask for the million dollars? Or do we put our faith in man and walk in the lie? We have to decide, do we walk in the lie or do we walk in the truth? And you tell me where you put your faith, and I'll tell you which side of the T-chart you walk on. Because i got news for you. If we could walk on the truth side 24-7, they would call us Jesus. But we can't because we have a simple nature. But I guarantee you we can walk there 95 98% of the time because we have his DNA. And what happens is since we don't feel this in our cars driving down the road, we don't feel this in our offices because he created us to feel his presence, to feel his power. Just like we did this morning when the singing was going on. Even when we're driving in our car, we replace it with pride because it's the same kind of feeling. It's the false feeling, but it's the same kind of feeling. And if we have pride, guess what we won't do? We won't confess and repent to, before God, and we certainly won't confess before man. 
And what we say is, what if we had bumper buddies? What if we had people that we're walking with that we could trust and love, and there's nothing we couldn't share? Because I got news for you. The only place sin has power is in the darkness. And then what happens, this gap between our real self and our ideal self closes. And then the stress goes down. Our serotonin's good. Our dopamine's good. Our adrenaline's are in order. And then you know what we do then? Doggone it, we change the world. Because what happens is everything we communicate, we communicate 93% of it through our body language and our tone of voice. Let me ask you a question. If you were not a believer and you hadn't been touched by the power of the Holy Spirit and you looked at this thing called the body of Christ and you were looking at it, would you be running to be a part of it? Would you, yes or no? No, you wouldn't because the body language and the tone of voice is not consistent with the words we teach. And what would happen if they became consistent? See, this is the best, this is the best message of hope I've ever heard. I hate to say it because I'm giving it, but I, because it's all out of the Bible. It's a message of hope. It's a message of joy. It's a message of freedom. It's a message of forgiveness. But you can't do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. I know that. It took me a long time to learn that. Can't do it. And what I found is that there's this word that we use called discernment, knowledge about other people. And what I found is that when we have discernment or knowledge and we, and we have it without mercy, grace, or love, we can be very judgmental. If we have it the way grace and mercy and love are taught, I believe, in the body of Christ around the world mostly, which is mercy and grace is be nice to one another. I got news for you. The word nice ain't in the Bible. And I'll come back to that in just a minute. But if, and if we have love that's faith in man, not faith in God, we enable one another. But when we have discernment, knowledge, with godly mercy, godly grace, and agape love, we become disciplers. And the missing link is we don't have transformational disciplers. How many of us want to make someone like me? Now, Paul says, be like me, but only like me as I'm like Jesus. But how many of us want to say, come be like me? Because if I say, come be like me, i got to tell you everything. So you know what not to be like. So you know that yesterday, this is how I sinned, but I'm your, I'm, you're my disciple, so i got to tell you what I did yesterday so you don't do it. This is called transformational disciples, and, and what that turns into is spiritual mothers and fathers. And what does a spiritual mother and father know how to do? How many of you have children? How many of you love your children unconditionally? How many of you forgive them unconditionally? See, that's what we're supposed to do with each other, and that's what mothers and fathers do. So if we had spiritual mothers and fathers that were so healed and so free that we could unconditionally love and forgive, do you think we could change the world? We could. But if we keep judging and gossiping and, and talking about one another, we don't change anything. And the only way we're going to stop doing that is if we stop listening to it. We're not going to stop listening to it if we're taking part in it. And we're not going to quit if we don't have that freedom. But Jesus says it's there. It's available to you. You know, I was given a message once that Jesus, the word nice ain't in the Bible. And then I got, a, I got an email from a guy that's fairly well known. And he said, Ford, I want to give you a gentle rebuke. You said that the word nice ain't in the Bible. He said, I've, I've researched a, a bunch of different versions. And I found out that it is in the Bible. It, it's right here one time. And it's where Jesus said, I came with a sword not to be nice. Preach on, brother. See, there's a difference in kindness and gentleness and understanding and being nice. Because if somebody comes to me and says, you got lettuce in your teeth, it may not be very nice, but if they do it in love and humility and pre-forgiveness and kindness, 
I can hear it. And what would happen if we had bumper buddies to walk that out? Here's what I found in this walk. Is that when I confront my own personal sin daily up against the holiness of God, up against the glory of God, that the light switch of judgment for anyone else clicks off. If I compare it to who I used to be or to what I see maybe other people doing compared to what I'm doing, because some days that's about the same, but most days hopefully it's not, I can be very judgmental. And so here's the challenge I have. Is it possible that the true measure of a person's faith, the true depth of the relationship that they have with God could best be measured not based on how they confront their own sin, but how they deal with the sin of others? Because what I believe is, is that if you are a believer, you are a minister, you are a shepherd. It happened the minute you entered the body. The, the question is, how well can we do that? How many of you work in the marketplace? You work outside full-time missions. Only four of you? That's good. How many of you work in the marketplace? That's anything that's not missions or church vocational income. Okay, good. Sorry, I thought you had only 97 pastors here and like three business people. Okay, now look here. 3% of the Christians across the world get their vocational income from being a full-time pastor, a full-time missionary, ministry leader. Approximately 3%. Some numbers say as low as 0.065%. But let's use the big number, 3%. That means the other 97% of us get our vocational income doing something else. Now, let me ask you something. If you're, if you're working alongside somebody 40 or 50 hours a week, who has more influence with that person, you or their pastor that gets them an hour a week? Who has the most influence? You do. Wouldn't it be interesting if we actually approached all week that we were ministers in the marketplace? And we understood that whether I'm coaching the volleyball team, whether I'm being a husband, a parent, a boss, that we have influence. And what if we were influenced because people looked and said, wow, you look different than everybody else. What's going on? What would happen if they walked in your office and actually asked that question? What is that presence in here? What if you picked up a homeless person off the street and you're walking down the street and they ask you this question? Whoa, what is that presence in your car? Do you really want to know? You know how fun it is to be working with business executives and them say to you, why does all of your stuff work? My marriage is better. My my relationship with my kids are better. We're making more money. Why does it all work? And you say to them, you don't want to know. Yes, we do. No, trust me, you don't want to know. We want to know. Trust me, you do not want to know why everything I taught you works. We pay you money. You tell us. And you reach over. I mean, they're begging for the gospel. And you're reaching your backpack, and so I'll tell you why it works, because I plagiarize it all right out of here. I just put it in English without these. And you know what? This works whether you believe it or not. Kingdom principles, you don't even have to believe them. It says, my ways are for the just and the unjust, for the righteous and the unrighteous. They work whether we believe them or not. I said, but they work because I plagiarize them, because I believe Jesus is the Son of God, and I believe he died and he rose again, and I believe when we accept that, we enter the kingdom of God that day. And if you go to church, they'll tell you, Find that, find a piece that passes understanding. I'm telling you, that's not true. You'll get that for about 60 days, and then the work begins. And if you knew what to do in that work, you'll find a piece that passes understanding, but you've got a part to play. It doesn't just stay there. Let me tell you why all my stuff works. It's because it's not my stuff. See, the thing is, if we believe it, we'd do it, wouldn't we? Would you not? I mean, if I believe something, wouldn't I do it? Yes or no? if I thought the outcome, but there's lots of places that if you'll do this, I'll do this. So what would happen if we had marketplace people out spreading the gospel 
with their words lined up with their body language and tone of voice. You know, one time was this lady, she was driving down the street and she got rear-ended in the back of her car. And when she got rear-ended, she jumped out of the car and she started screaming at people, at the guy that ran into her. The policeman showed up and, and they looked and they watched. They said, ma'am, please put your hands up on the car. And she did. And they said, now, ma'am, please put your, your hands behind your back. And they handcuffed her and they took her down to the jail. About three hours later, they came out and they took her out of the prison. They said, ma'am, you can go home now. And she looked at them and she said, well, why did you take me to jail? They said, well, when we drove up in the car and we, we saw you screaming and cussing at the man that ran into you, we looked over at your car and we saw a little fish on the back of it and a little sticker that said, I love Jesus. And just naturally, we assumed you stole the car. So, <laughs> so what would happen if we had influence? We were going and asking, are you okay? And praying for that person. How many of you would be challenged to to say, I want to, have, I want to truly live a transformed life if I just had the tools to do it. Because see, lots of times the reason we're not doing it is we don't actually have the ingredients, the tools in a way that we actually can go apply them and, and get across this bridge. You know, one time there was this little boy at home and, and his phone rang and he picked up the phone and he said, hello. And the man on the other end said, little boy, is your mother home? I mean, is your is little boy, is your mother home? And he said, yes. Well, can I speak to her? She's busy right now. Was your daddy home? Yes. Well, can I speak to him? He's busy right now too. Was there anybody else there? Yes. The fire department's here. Well, can I speak to one of them? No. They're busy right now too. Was there anybody else there? Yes. The police department's here. <laughs> well, could we speak to one of them? No, they're busy right now, too. Well, little boy, if, if all those people are there and they're busy, what are they doing? They're looking for me. <laughs> you know, I think many believers across the world, God's on the phone and he's saying, Because I think one day we're going to have to stand before the throne room of God and he's going to ask us this question. What did you do with the gifts I gave you? What did you do with what I gave you to see the world transformed into the likeness of my son? And I think we're going to have to answer that question.